Welcome to Club Radio. Welcome to Club Radio, a collection of intimate audio recordings, interviews, stories, DJ mixes, field recordings, archival tape, and oddities. I'm your guide, Hannah Vitti, or Vitti Girl. Each episode of Club Radio will be different. Each exploration is an audio zine, a love letter to sound and all of her peculiarities. I ask for one thing, that you listen deeply. I hope together we can strengthen our practices of deep listening to do more than just hear. Deep listening is a formal practice. The term is coined by the late, great Pauline Oliveros, a composer, electronic music artist, and deep listener. She was a person devoted to listening as a practice for altering consciousness through profound attention to our sonic environments. However, Native and Aboriginal communities have always practiced deep listening formally and informally. Here's Pauline Alveros on the subject. The practice of deep listening, as it has developed, explores the difference between hearing and listening. The ear hears, the brain listens, the body senses vibrations. Listening is a lifetime practice that depends on accumulated experiences with sound. Listening can be focused to detail or open to the entire field of sound. Listening is a mysterious process that is not the same for everyone. Humans have developed consensual agreements on the interpretation of sound waves delivered to the brain by the ears. Languages are such agreements. To hear and to listen have a symbiotic relationship with a questionable, common usage. We know more about hearing than listening. Scientists can measure what happens in the ear. Measuring listening is another matter as it involves subjectivity. We confuse hearing with listening. I differentiate to hear and to listen. To hear is the physical means that enables perception. To listen is to give attention to what is perceived, both acoustically and psychologically. Hearing turns a certain range of vibrations into perceptible sounds. When listening, there is a constant interplay with the perception of the moment 
compared with remembered experience. Or the interpretation of sound waves then is subject to time delays. Sometimes what is heard is interpreted anywhere from milliseconds to many years later or never. So what is deep listening? Acoustic space is where time and space merge as they are articulated by sound. Deep has to do with complexity, boundaries, or edges beyond ordinary or habitual understandings. The subject is too deep for me, or she is a deep thinker. A subject that is too deep surpasses one's present understanding or has too many unknown parts to grasp easily. A deep thinker defies stereotypical knowing and it may take either a long time or never to understand her. Deep, coupled with listening, or deep listening for me, is learning to expand perception of sounds to include the whole space-time continuum of sound, encountering the vastness and complexities as much as possible. Simultaneously, one ought to be able to target a sound or sequence of sounds perceiving the beginning, middle, and end of them as a focus. Such focus and expansion means that one is connected to the whole of the environment and beyond. My practice is to listen to everything all the time and remind myself when I am not listening. I invite you to take a moment now to notice what you are hearing and to expand your listening to continually include more. Today on Club Radio, we explore grief and pleasure, resistance and joy, dance floors. One thing I've learned during the club closures is that nothing can really replace a dance floor. I mean, we can dance at home, alone or with friends in a park, on the street. We can go to the gym, we can run, we can take a dance class, none of that, or even all of it combined can really replace a dance floor at all. Chapter one, protest. Our exploration begins with Miss Billie Holiday. Billie Holiday first sang Strange Fruit in March 1939. She was 23 years old. Miss Holiday walked up to the mic at West Forth Cafe Society in New York City to sing her final song of the night. Per her request, the waiters stopped serving and the room went completely dark, except for a single spotlight 
on her face. And then she sang. When she finished, the spotlight turned off, and when the lights returned, the stage was empty. She was gone, and there would be no encore. Strange Fruit was first a poem written by Abel Mirapool, a Jewish communist teacher and civil rights activist from the Bronx. In 1930, he came across a photo of the lynching of two black men in Indiana. The image haunted him for days and prompted him to pen the poem. Strange Fruit was published in a teacher's union publication. Then Abel composed it into a song and passed it on to a nightclub owner, who then introduced it to Miss Billie Holiday. When she heard the lyrics, she was deeply moved by them. Not only because she was a Black American, but the song reminded her of her father, who had died at 39 years old from a fatal lung disorder after being turned away from a hospital because he was Black. Holiday did not enjoy performing Strange Fruit. Instead, she said that she felt she had to. Strange Fruit was adopted by civil rights activists and Black America, but whiteness would creep in to destroy her because of it. The Federal Bureau of Narcotics Commissioner, Henry Ingslinger, forbade Holiday to perform Strange Fruit, and she refused. And like so many white men to come before and after him, he set out to end her. He employed knowledge of her drug usage to frame her, arrest her, and ban her from the nightclubs. Holiday battled him and her relationships to drugs with resilience. But finally, even though Holiday had been showing gradual signs of recovery, Anslinger's men forbade doctors to offer her treatment. Ainslinger sent his men to the hospital to handcuff her to the bed while she died. to answer that question mm. so straightforwardly. Mm -hmm. 
You don't have to be straightforward. You can... <laughs> well, what, what, what I would say is that there's an enormous amount of energy. There's an enormous amount of excitement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are never any guarantees. Yeah. And in the late 60s, uh, we struggled passionately. Uh, and we thought we were going to make a revolution. We were persuaded that we were going to bring radical transformations to the society. Um, we didn't win the revolution. We thought we were fighting. But we did manage to revolutionize society. So in many okay. ways, you know, so I would say there are never any guarantees. But it is important to act as if it were possible to radically transform the world. This is the movement. Whether we call it a movement, or this is the beginning of the potential for a movement.
That recording of Billie Holiday comes from the Library of Congress from the year 1939. You heard Angela Davis speaking in 2011 and a collection of field recordings from yours truly, including sonic documentation of a protest in downtown Chicago on May 30th after the killing of George Floyd. Chapter 2. Subspace. And now, Leah Ball, a person who embodies pleasure and movement deeply, who lives and feels deeply. I sat with my friend on the porch on a crisp fall evening. Underneath the airplanes, as she spoke, I swear, I witnessed the orange leaves begin to fall in hopes that they might land on her shoulder. Leah is an arts facilitator, ceramicist, writer, organizer, octopus lover, and water molecule that I'm blessed to know and love. Leah currently lives in Chicago. Okay. Okay. A prayer for Sarah. Last night, I went to church and spoke to my maker. The vibrations of the music resonated within as I called on your release. I scanned my entire body and breathed love into DNA I know we have always and will always share. I danced my hips in a wave-like roll, beat my chest, raised my hands upward, and nodded with eyes tightly pressed together, summoning your pleasure. I melted into the feeling of my eyelashes kissing my cheek. Tears pooled. I asked for the surrender of this lesson, to find peace knowing that everything we are learning is a strange and important gift. I let the lights and the thumping bass erase my mind's tongue, but I didn't let go. I held focus and intention inside of myself. I was grateful for how loud your presence was felt deeply within. We will carry each other in every life we ever live. That is what it means to be our kind of love. I have and will always know you. I wrote that maybe a year and a half ago, or I oh God, it's probably been two years now, because it was when she was still fighting, so fuck that word. She was still navigating cancer. Sarah? Oh, Sarah's my sister, my younger sister. I'm the oldest of four, and she is um, was the second born, and she died of cancer on January 20th. 2020, <laughs> at 9 a.m. in the morning, with everybody around. Telling her that we loved her, and then she transitioned. The reality is, is that it was a really difficult diagnosis. It was a really difficult path for everyone, obviously, especially her. And what I've found was that people oftentimes would sort of show up to see her unprepared and then they would have their fear on their face and she would have to like deal with trying to make other people feel comfortable about her imminent death or her struggle. And that was really hard for me. And I felt like it kind of shut her down. There was a while where she really wasn't talking to anybody. And so I started reading about octopuses, which then kind of got me into exploring the mind and then I started getting into neuro-linguistic programming, which is sort of like hypnosis. I started learning it, so we, we did it together, which was really amazing. One of the things that we worked on together actually is this thing called anchoring. 
it's where you can create a particular place in your body that if you engage it in a particular way, like it could be a tap between your thumb and your middle finger. It could be a slider that you put on your on your forearm. Um, it could be, you know, maybe you like touch your ear or something, but it could be a particular like body anchor. And we started working on that with her, where what we would do is we would close our eyes and you basically get into an associated memory. So an associated memory is where you use all of your senses. Our brains work in a couple of different ways, but we use five languages, our five senses as modalities, as our dominant languages. And so we store and recall memories through our senses. We all use senses in different combinations. Not all of us have access to all senses, but we generally our mind is made up with using these senses and then also we have like our mind body spirit too which is another aspect of it and they all kind of work together to create our understanding to situate us into reality with my sister what we were working on was we were trying to create a place of comfort on her body to where when she was having to do some of the more difficult things that she could tap that part of her body and it would help Basically, our emotions are just a bunch of chemicals that are flooded in our body, so we do have some control over it. We started anchoring with a tap, a comforting, safe place for her. So we would we would sit in our body, and we would just go into a memory where she once felt really safe, secure, loved, happy, which for us was on the beach because we grew up on the beach, so oftentimes it was like a beach scene. And so we would go there and we would basically, I'd just have her describe everything, how it felt, where she felt it. I would do the same and we would kind of share it. And then once we would get into it, we would be like, okay, we feel it, right? Like we can feel we're like on the beach. Then what you do is you tap that part of your body while you're kind of like juicing the feeling. And some tricks to really help build that muscle, that like anchor, is you can be like, what does it feel like if I feel this times two? What happens if I, I want to feel this times three? And every time you kind of keep juicing this memory, you tap that part of your body. And it's after enough times, you're able to kind of put that into your body to where in any situation, you, the goal would be you'd be able to kind of tap that and it would help anchor you in whatever feeling you want to have. So you can do that with creativity. You can do it with pleasure. You can do it with comfort, you know, all these things. It's really helpful for people that are dealing with pain. So we did that. My sister and I did it in um It was pretty, it was, it was interesting. It was really intense. I don't, I don't know if I've shared this with you, but the last time I saw her, she was actually going in for surgery. She was going to have surgery to like, you know, keep her around for a little bit longer. And then I had to get on a plane and come home because I was only going home for a couple of weeks. She wasn't supposed to be on death's, on death's door. Um, so I left, but right before I left, we put an anchor on her arm. And um, when I saw her, she was, she died of eight, Eight hours after I saw her, when I came back, I left for like two days. And when I came back, she just had unfortunately um, progressed so far that she was pretty close to being at the end. But when I got there, she had kind of a moment where she was really upset, like something happened and she was just like really anxious and she kept trying to get out of bed and pull out her oxygen. And I touched the part on her body where we had set the anchor and she like immediately calmed down. What did that feel like for you? Um, uh, <laughs> so many things. Um, it felt, it just felt like I was really grateful that we had shared that moment. It felt like it was helpful. And 
but I think I think it, you know a couple of things. It made me wish that I had been there more before she passed. Because what if we had been able to work on that for a lot longer? And that was always my goal. I didn't know she was going to die as fast as she did. Like we thought she had six more months. And it also made me really like amazed by how powerful this stuff is. You know, like truly, truly a believer afterwards. You know, like wow, this is really a powerful stuff. So yeah. Um, that the poem that you that you read you know, takes place for you on a dance floor, you know, maybe a dance floor is an anchor for you. Guys, or <laughs> Sir, well, I think I would say that a dance floor is a place where I constantly feel, a, not always, but especially a smart board dance floor where that like was written. Like that place to me always feels like a place where I can kind of tap into the rhythm of, and the movement of my body and feel like this really pleasurable release. And so it's a really good place for me when I want to go to an embodied memory that feels good. It's a good place for me to go to put anchors. It's a rejuvenating place for me. And it's a place where I think I do a lot of prayer, I guess, or, or spirituality because I do feel like more tapped into my body is the easier I can like find peace with stuff. So, and I, I guess one of the other things too is like, I started creating a relationship with subspace when my sister got really sick because I had to and I guess I would define subspace as like dance floor space kink space like bottoming and like a kink BDSM scene or um or topping I mean you can do it both places like physical exertion <laughs> for me like meditative dancing or like yoga and stuff like that and um I think that you know, I had to sh I had to like shake a lot of survivor's guilt when I was doing those things while she was sick and navigating her diagnosis because I felt like what what are you doing like feeling so good like you're not dealing with this firsthand like but you know, I was I was dealing with losing my sister which is like I don't I don't even really know yet how to explain what that's like, but it's incredibly jarring and I feel like I'm in a different world. <laughs> um So so there was maybe some feelings of being like selfish or feeling maybe that I was you know, pursuing like a, maybe something that was superficial or like unimportant. But the more and more that I, you know, would spend time with my sister in the hospital while she was, you know, I went and spent like two weeks with her in the hospital. She was getting like a rare treatment. I spent a lot of time with her getting chemo over the years. And what I found was like, actually, I think it was because of my seeking out designing, architecting, making sure that I had these subspace experiences. And for me being an incredibly like sexual kind of person, very sexual ways of outlet for my pain, I was able to show up for her in a way that felt really authentic that she, I think, appreciated and be curious and weird and read about octopuses and tell her about them and about hypnosis. And, and at the end of the day, like, hopefully she's grateful of, of that. Pleasure and pain are really not that different. They're both full feelings, like really full feelings. And, you know, fear might be different than pain. I don't know. I, I guess like, like happiness, a full rich life, like isn't absent of pain. And like sometimes it's pain and loss. I mean, there's so much gratitude in the grief for my sister. Like I spend a lot of time missing her, but it's because I'm so fucking grateful for my life with her. Because like I had such a important, thoughtful, like cool, like so amazing, like best friend for my whole fucking life. She's gone now, or I guess I shouldn't say that she's gone. I mean, I talk to her all the time now, but you know, I'm not able to connect with her in the way that I was used to, used to before. 
that's painful. I mean, it's excruciating. And also, wow, I'm so lucky that I got to feel that much love for somebody, you know? How fucking, like, fortunate is that? And, um... And, and also, too, like, when it comes to just the physical act of pleasure, like, I think the, the feeling of coming or orgasming, like, it's a cathartic rinse, right? It's, like, heat, fuzzy release. And sometimes at the top of that release is a lot of tears. And sometimes it's painful. And sometimes it's just really cathartic. But it's all important, I think. My desire for sex can feel larger than an ocean that expands out to an invisible horizon. My mouth hungry to roam wet for the secrets in flesh, escapism, or edge play. With each whack of pain, am I growing strength? Can I make someone destroy me? Co-regulate into oblivion. I could listen to you for hours, Leo. Oh. <sighs> okay. Intense. I'm like, want to make sure you're feeling okay. Oh, I'm okay. I appreciate being able to talk about it, honestly. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, I've talked about this before, but, like, you know, losing a 33-year-old sister is taboo. It just is. People don't want to hear about losing your sibling because it, they, it makes them think about losing their sibling or somebody that they love at a young age, and death at our age is taboo, you know? kind of just think of, like, Chadwick Boseman, you know, and, like, hiding his fucking cancer diagnosis for four years. That makes me so fucking mad and sad for him. And so, like, I... I think oftentimes I don't want to talk about it because I'm afraid people are going to be like, oh, this is hard, right? And it's like, I mean, honestly, it's sure. But I love to talk about her. Like, I love, I mean, she's she was so fucking cool. I mean, she's still really cool, but she was, like, such a, a cool human. And, like, we shared so many memories and experiences. And, I mean, I'm constantly having conversations with her. She's such a huge part of my life. But because she's no longer in this realm... I feel like I can't talk about her that much because I'm afraid people are going to be like, oh, we are talking about your dead sister. And I'm like, no, she's she's literally right here. Like, get over it. She's not maybe on the phone, but she's with me all the time. I'm not, I mean, sure, sometimes I cry, but I'm an adult. I can like, I'm not going to necessarily wail if it's not consensual. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to like make you hold that labor if you're not ready for it. And also like, can I just talk about my damn sister? <laughs> you know, but it's just, it's, it's interesting. Like, why can I talk about my sister, but you can't anymore because mine's physically here it's interesting right mm-hmm. like hierarchy of body you know we've known from you know ableism, ableism. yeah but to extend that to grief I mean, mm-hmm. real. yeah yeah this poem is called when i give myself time to fantasize about touching people again which was in the middle of quarantine sometimes pleasure hurts so bad that i feel like i'm taking my life by doing something that feels good Sometimes I conquer my fear of death by thinking I'm training myself to combust into oblivion when I have an orgasm. So if I get taken into another terrible situation that I'll be able to hit the self-destruct button if I ever need to. I think it's because sometimes pleasure and pain are just the same. Sometimes it feels like my heart might actually flutter out when I come. If it's good, I definitely visit oblivion in that fever dream. It's the top of a swing into waves of neon water, like I'm just coming up to breathe with flowers in my eyelids, then down a roller coaster before melting into a pile of cotton candy that maybe tastes like passion fruit and cinnamon after an oyster feast while sitting in the sun. There's just so far to go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm obsessed. <laughs> <clears throat> 
If I'm being totally honest, I still feel like I live within the fog of losing my sister every day. It was a really intense two and a half years. I watched her fight monsters far worse than I saw in any movie. I watched them drain so much from her. I'm still in shock. Sometimes I feel guilty or bad for still being this scrambled from it. And then I remember what happened and I know I'm being really fucking brave every day I get out of bed. And sometimes I'm being more brave for staying in bed. The truth is our culture will destroy any happiness you might be able to hold on to it if you're dying. I'm not going to pretend like I don't feel the weight of her death and everything still. I defiantly find pleasure. I seek out joy despite the heaviness. I feel more fearless and strong in some ways than ever, and more broken and scared in ways that surprise me. I want to make her proud, and so I am being honest. The dishonesty of our death culture is toxic, and I'm not going to buy into it. Losing people changes you. Grief is deep and more than sadness and pain. It's full body, and it's got joy, gratitude, and love in it, too. It's like a rough Beautiful. Where do your anchors reside? In which memories, feelings, sensations, wear on your body? How can we listen deeply to our bodies? To the full feeling pleasure and pain they carry? How can we show up for the both ands in our life? the abundant complexities. Scholar Silvia Federici writes in her essay titled In Praise of the Dancing Body. Our struggle then must begin with the reappropriation of our body, the reevaluation and rediscovery of its capacity for resistance and expansion and celebration of its powers, individual and collective. Dance is central to this reappropriation. In essence, the act of dancing is an exploration and an invention of what a body can do, of its capacities, its languages, its articulations, of the strivings of our being. I have come to believe that there is a philosophy in dancing, for dance mimics the process by which we relate to the world, connect with other bodies transform ourselves and the space around us. Chapter 3. Memories Two blocks from where I grew up on a busy Chicago street lives the largest collection of Midwestern LGBTQ archives. It's nestled in between Howard Brown, a wildly important queer community health center, and Jackhammer a historical gay bar revered because of the hole. The hole's their basement sex dungeon that boasts no shirts and no chicks. Growing up as a little questioning queer, navigating compulsory heterosexuality, it's ironic placement for my personal narrative. But it says even more about queer history. Queer history memorializes those who are allowed in. Even Howard Brown, which was created in 1974 as a response to the AIDS crisis, didn't begin providing services for women until 1992. I got a Facebook invite for the opening of a new exhibit at the archive. The exhibit was called Lavender Women and Killer Dykes, Lesbians, Feminism, and Community in Chicago. The name excited me. Lavender Women and Killer Dykes. Lavender Woman. Killer Dyke. I'd also been chatting with someone cute on Tinder who told me she volunteered at the archive. 
Tiffany liked long bike rides, astrology, and medical marijuana. Promising. I couldn't make it to the opening, but on a cold, sleepy Saturday morning, I set out on my quest for history and a potentially very awkward first date. Here we go. I'm trying to tell you something about my life. This has got to be enough. The date went well. Um, but how has Tinder, like, how, how has Tinder worked for you? <laughs> well, like, I guess you would be the first person I've met from there. That's exciting. <laughs> I'm excited about that. I don't, like, I don't know. Oh my god, that makes me happy. And I'm like, hey, let's meet up and let me interview you for this project about your archive. I promised that if we hung out again, I wouldn't bring a microphone. But the exhibit? I guess I felt that it was missing something. That was kind of a disappointment. It gave me a glimpse of white lesbian life in Chicago during the 70s and 80s. The walls were filled with iconic photos, newsletters, and lengthy text. But it felt one-dimensional. And very white. Black, brown, trans, and disabled voices were missing. But a bright yellow flyer stuck out to me. I could almost hear it. We're back! Executive Suite Inc. presents Doing It Again, Sunday, November 4th, Lace and Leather Contest. With the accompanying text, Executive Suite was a traveling party group for women of color in Chicago. After seeing friends of color face discrimination at many Northside bars, Pat McCombs worked with Pam Terrell, Sharon Webb, and later Vera Washington to form Executive Suite in 1980. I've often wondered how much we miss when we study history and memories exclusively through image. In my experience, queer life is filled with sounds. Laughter, dance floors, protests, life-sustaining conversations. Aside from the noisy elevator, the exhibit was silent. Queer history memorializes those who are allowed in. Queer history remembers those with access. The women of Executive Suite made their own space and then opened it to others. I wanted to know what Executive Suite would have sounded like and what nuances we might gain from hearing their voices. (laughs) So I reached out to my new friend and mentor, Lori Branch. She's what I'm calling a sonic historian. We met through DJing. Her radio show, Vintage House, airs after mine on Wednesday nights. It was Lauren Lowry's baby. Uh, It is definitely connected to the Dance Music Archive foundation which she established. Uh, it is an out, outgrowth of her attempt to, you know, create a repository of these memories, you know, really to add to the, the growing evidence of Chicago as the birthplace of house music. She's kind and unassuming. Like me, you might not guess that she's a legendary DJ within the house music community. But her connections and revered status became clear very quickly. She has also been inducted into the Chicago LGBTQ Hall of Fame. Plus, she's about as Chicago as they come. Chicago. Lori might be the perfect person to help me fill the silence. I wrote to her about my quest, and the good lesbian goddesses must have been shining down on me. 
because she told me that she'd be interviewing the women of Executive Suite on her show in just a few weeks. Would you like to join? A few weeks later, there I was in the studio with Lori, Pat, Sharon, and Vera, each of them wearing their personality. Lori wore her signature baseball cap and form-fitting pullover. Sharon, a leather bow tie and pointed snakeskin boots. Pat wore big silver hoops and red lipstick. And Vera had on a custom executive suite necklace. Okay, I'm DJ Sharon. I'm the creator of Executive Suite. Pat McCombs, also an original member of Executive Suite. And I'm Vera Washington, and I'm the baby of the Executive Suite. Our very first flyer said, Use our suite to meet with ladies who are discreet. Come join us at the Executive Suite. First time I did a party with them, it was on 73rd and Cottage Grove. I cannot remember the name. Yeah. And the, the, bitter the Bitter End. End. I remember the Bitter End. The Bitter End. That's the Bitter End. And they raided the place. And they raided us. I had had an, an encounter. I never had a problem getting in, mm-hmm. me personally. Mm-hmm. But some of my friends, every time they would go, they would ask women of color for a public aid ID. It was green. It was a green card. Why would who would have a public aid ID? Only people who they felt like black people had public aid IDs. So, so the assumption was that all black people. What is a public right. aid card? Let, well, at, at the time, that, that was the identification for people on public assistance. Okay, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to sound ignorant. Yeah. I was just That's curious. Right because mm-hmm. okay. times have changed and they, don't, okay. they call it something else now. Sure. But at the time, when they did that, something just sparked to me because I just felt like, oh, they just assume all of us are on public aid. Why would they ask for a public aid card? Don't ask me. Honey. Was it to be intentionally shady? Or yes. was it? I don't yes. know. Like, like, some kind of way. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know the reason behind yeah. it. But I just know it made me angry enough okay. to want to mm-hmm. do something about it. So mm-hmm. I just picketed the bar. You and by yourself? Them, me and some other people that I had involved. I mm-hmm. had this uh, white lawyer by the name of Rennie Hanover. Yes. Who was very okay. active in the community. Mm-hmm. And she helped to kind of help me at the time. Because I was very active on the north side anyway. Right. That's why I knew so many people on the north side because I was involved in a lot of different right. lesbian stuff on the north side. Right. Lesbian Community Center, mm-hmm. Mountain Moving Mountain Coffee Moving House. Co- right. I was with the hotline for Wicca, they call it Wicca, on a hotline because I felt like they needed people of color to be mm-hmm. involved in those particular centers for lesbians. Right. And so I was always very active in that anyway. Right. So this just sparked me to just just make a move and do something about it rather than talk about it right. among my friends. Because we needed somewhere to go and meet other women like ourselves. And the first time I went to a lesbian bar, it was such a mind kind of blowing experience for me. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about like what was it like when you when you first started offering you know this this option for for women? What was it like for you? Like walk us through that experience. So I was really anxious to really get involved in being having women events. Yes, because of the discrimination of the bars on the north side. Mm-hmm. So it was very, to me, it mm-hmm. was imperative that we try to form our own social type atmosphere mm-hmm. for women of color right. 
professional right. women of color and kind of undercover because we didn't we never said we were lesbians because at the time you couldn't you couldn't, you couldn't come out you as couldn't lesbians. come out as lesbians but the word like we spread the word through word of mouth we okay. didn't have social media no so it was through word of mouth mm-hmm. and we at every party we would have people sign a list and that formed list. our mailing list for us to send out in, invites okay so that's how we kind of built on that yeah. but initially it it became imperative that we have quality events for women of color right because we didn't have many places to go right of course of course so, so what tell, tell me how it felt i mean did you you had your first big night do you remember that um, i felt like i was the shit <laughs> <laughs> no just kidding it felt wonderful because we were among our peers, oh, our peers and beautiful women. And beautiful women. Was there dating going on? Of course. Hooking up. Of course. All that. All that. I'm trying to, I'm trying to get a feel. After the interview, I asked Lori if I might be able to sit down with her one-on-one. I started by asking her what the parties sounded like. So songs that, that remind me of that era. Um, so caught up in a one-night love affair in her life. I'm caught up. Tons of fun, um, just us. Yes, you know these songs. Oh, I know these songs. Okay. of course. You know those. You know a lot of a lot of that stuff. Um, you know, uh, um, but I was inspired. You know, I I really was inspired, and I I didn't play for girls so much as a DJ, but I did, you know, try to draw inspiration from those DJs because I was DJing at the time, but I didn't typically pay, play for girls. I, and I didn't play for boys either. I played with boys. I mean, people looked forward to those parties. They really, you know, they were a big deal back then. And, and it was a big deal for us. I mean, we, we went, you know, um, there's so few spaces where you can just sort of be all of who you are. And and so for Pat and Vera, it's like, I don't remember thinking, oh, I'm going to hear good music or I'm going to date or any of that. It was just like, where can you go and be your whole full self? And like, everybody's cool with it. You know, even if they are a little clicky and whatever, it's okay to be exactly who you are. When you go to the boys' clubs, you got to remember, you know, be cognizant that you're a woman in their space. If you're in a straight party, be cognizant that it's bisexual. And is this girl talking to me because she wants to get with me or just, you know, she wants me to DJ or what's, what's happening here? You know, versus you go to a Pat and Vera party, you're, you're who you are. And I think that's probably a lot of people's experience. It's like, you know, when you are a, a minority in a minority in a minority, you know, there's, there's, there's few open spaces that... You can show up as you are, your whole self. Come on, let's dance, our troubles away. You deserve it, so have it your way. The DJ is open, dance floor is open. To the sound of the street. Ain't no stopping us now. It's time to jump to the beat. I like to see people meet each other. Yes. They're women that still out here today has been together since Executive Suite started. Wow. Yep. Yeah. They had like 30 and 40 years until they married. Yeah. And I like bringing people together. We had a DJ that brought his girlfriend and his girlfriend left with another girl on our boat ride. Oh, well. Actually, the white parties for yes. girls started with Executive Suite. That's right. Mm-hmm. 
tell us about the white parties. Oh, they I just loved them. So everybody came dressed just in white. Everybody right. dressed right. Everybody. in white. Yeah. There was no everybody like a bunch came of angels to white. out there. And they weren't angry. Sometimes the theme parties. <laughs> they weren't angry. Yeah. yeah, we did a lot of theme parties. Theme yeah. parties, you know. So you said they weren't angry. Yeah, yeah. When we did the white parties, you know, sometimes I don't be telling me what to wear. Got yeah. it. Yeah. Okay. Everybody you know, was a court. But came. when right. we but when we right. did the white parties, right. it wasn't nothing in there but white. Yeah. <laughs> Archives are definitely important. Queer history deserves to be saved and shared, but I'm convinced that silent storytelling misses a lot. So we can start by listening. Sound is a radical tool for memory collection, and it also plays a large part in creating spaces, communities. Where can you go and be your hopeful self? What's the next so the three step? of us. So yeah. what's, what's next for Executive Suite? We're, we're talking about we're it. Talking our last about dance. Last it's dance. Together and get Why gotta be the last no. dance? Uh, Cause I ain't gonna be 75 over here trying to. <laughs> <laughs> right. You, know, you ain't nowhere near 70 this year. Well, happy birthday, Pat McCombs. And I'm not. Black don't crack, people. Yeah, okay. So hey, you know. Chapter four, Reflections. All right, my name is Lindsay, a friend of many, dear and near to you. I live in New York City. Final Reflections, from a creature of the club. Lindsay Richardson is a fixture in the New York techno and house scene. She is a constellation of movement and deep thoughts. Normally, my Friday night would always end in a positive feeling. I would always be looking forward to the two nights that were ahead of me in New York City. I tend to go out both Friday night and Saturday night, most weekends. And even when I try to say I'm not going to go out Friday night, I always do because I need it. Because the dance floor is a place of reprieve for me among many of my fellow dancers whom I miss very much. I miss being with my friends without talking the most. I miss emoting non-verbally, physically, in a group of people in my little, and there's little microcosms to the dance floor, of course. You have your, your regular friends and dance partners who you do certain moves and rhythms to and steps with and then you have your your person that you admire who's always there for me it's this guy who is just a classic raver he's got like 
a bowl cut and just wears the baggiest big black thick sweatshirt t-shirt and just Jenko jeans and he just bobs so double time so subtly but so bouncy I just love the way that he moves and I always find myself synced up with him um, at moments of the night when we were sharing the dance floors I miss those people those people who I don't really have a deep connection or intimate relationship with I miss the people my club mates the people that I would see every single weekend and we had a formula that worked for us I some people might think it was some people might say and sometimes it does feel shallow to have the hi, how are you, da 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 da, da kind of like, let's go have a cig, and that's it. Those friends, but I think that I'm really seeing the benefit of those friends having not having the stop and chat opportunity so much. It's both a blessing and a curse, I think, because you get to explore how do I, you get to explore ways to like explain how you're doing in in a way that's authentic because you see this person every weekend. And I mean, personally for me, I want to be more than just a, you know, passive body on the dance floor that has no opinion. I want to have a personality and I want to learn people's personalities and I want to form bonds. And to do that, you need to figure out how to have micro conversations. And I guess I miss that. I miss that format. I mean, I think the most obvious thing that I miss is the sonic experience, a PA system, a bass that reverberates throughout your whole body. I miss your feet responding to a sensation that they're getting. Um, I got I got speakers in the crib, but it's not the sound system at the club. I mean, New York has some incredible sound systems um, that you can swim in, so I really, really miss the sound and the way that it creates a space to be together without verbal conversation. I really just miss being in community without words. It's so funny, right now I feel like we're just forced to conversate so much more than we used to. We used to have more excuses uh, or ex or we were busier. So I find myself talking to so many, some of my parents more and keeping in friend, keeping close with distant friends more. Um, but I miss, but the conversations, uh, it's, yeah, I just, I miss being in company with people and not having to talk especially in techno music. Techno music is so much about anonymity. Like every every bit of it on the dance floor, on a techno dance floor is about anonymity and celebrating your anonymity and expressing your individuality. So I miss that. I miss that as a space and a and a sentiment and I miss leaving my politics on the dance floor instead of in these conversations every weekend with my family or friends. Um, I miss being able to process politics and life um, and injustice in my mind, um, just processing. I miss that so much. I, I realized how much I depended on that um, 
when 45 was elected. And all I could do basically that first few months was go and listen to angry techno. And at the time in New York City, very angry and very fast and very hard techno was very popular. Now it's trancey and a little lighter and more emotional. But then it was very, very hard because the dance floor is a direct reflection of the politics and if a dance floor is good and if and if you if the right people are playing it's reflecting the way that people feel and so not having that option is brutal especially when your mental health has come to depend on it so i do find ways to get those dopamines released it doesn't take much for me to kind of transport my mind to the dance floor and literally get that dopamine release i don't I miss the full experience of the the sensory and the sensational and the the therapeutic aspects that the dance floor provides. <sighs> so, yeah, I miss drugs. I miss drugs in context. I miss taking drugs to also have my sensory experience on the dance floor deepened. Drugs have a different place outside of the dance floor. I think mind expansion is worthwhile for myself and I still benefit from experimenting, but it's it's a different uh, it's a different utilization and it's a different feeling and it's a different takeaway for sure. Thank you for asking this question and giving me an opportunity to think about it at length. Love you, Hannah. Good luck on this project. Today's episode included pieces from sound artist and rebel with a cause, Andy Slater. I'm Andy Slater and I approve this Hi, how are you? Hi, how are you? 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 Hi, how are you? You, you. I don't know anymore. I'm not sure I can anymore. I don't know who I am these days, do you? I certainly don't know how I am. How I am. I do know that I am a sack of flesh and bones and lust. I don't know what it means to be a DJ anymore. I'm fine. I'm okay. I'm hanging in there.